Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The oceans hold more than 96% of the Earth's water, and it's the motions of these oceans we're focusing on today. As people hit the beaches, many are unaware of underlying dangers lurking close to shore, and we're not talking about jaws. We're talking about rip currents, which lead to some 30,000 rescues each year. Today's guest is Dr. Greg Dusek, senior scientist at NOAA's National Ocean Service, and he knows all about rip currents. We'll discuss how to spot these hazards and how you can break the grip of the rip current. We also couldn't let Greg get away without discussing a few other topics. So if you're already wondering what a meteor tsunami is, we'll get to those later. So let's dive in. Greg, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Marshall. It's great to be here. Well, you know, Weather Geeks, we talk a lot about the National Weather Service, but we, I think you could be our first National Ocean Service guest. Wanna talk about what that is in a moment, but before we go there, there's a question I ask every Weather Geeks guest. How'd you get into your field? Is it something from your past when you were a kid? Uh, and tell us exactly what you identify yourself as. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a coastal physical oceanographer. And, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, I loved the ocean. So, you know, I grew up in a tiny town in upstate New York, um, nowhere near the ocean. Uh, but, but once a year, you know, my family and I would take the, the week-long vacation down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and you know, I'd be on the beach for a week, and it was it was the best week of my year every every year, right? So I'd get to just love being on the beach, loved was fascinated by the waves and the tides and the way the beach would change depending on what happened uh, with the waves, and and so it was something I was very interested in. And when I was when I would stay there, we would often stay in like Duck, North Carolina. And people might not know this, but Induck is one of the premier uh, coastal research facilities in the world, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers Field Research Facility. And it, you know, it's a very obvious landmark. But at the time, I didn't really know what they kind of work they did there. Um, but but I was aware of it, and so I ended up going to uh, undergrad uh, at University of uh, Rochester in Western New York and studied applied math, mostly because I didn't know really what I wanted to do, and I was good at math, and it was somewhat enjoyable. So I figured that would give me some options later on. Um, and, and I ended up going to grad school for teaching and curriculum actually to be a teacher. Um, and it was about that time where, although I enjoyed the education and communication part of teaching, I kind of realized that I was missing that math wasn't quite doing it for me. I wanted to study the natural world in some way. Um, and so I decided to go to, uh, get my PhD at the university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, and focusing on coastal physical oceanography. And I end up going and doing my field research in the Outer Banks at Duck, North Carolina, and working with a bunch of the experts at that same uh, research facility in Duck. And so it was like come full circle from places where I used to vacation as a kid. Now I get to work, um, and so that was just you know just awesome. And and I think being able to to work in a field that you're passionate about is just a fantastic thing. So I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, I, I agree with that as a meteorologist. I, I, I always tell someone, you know, I'm a professor at UGA and do all kinds of other things too, but I never feel like I'm working. I mean, this is just 
what I do. It's what I'm interested in. So I, I can sort of resonate with that. Let me give you a little background uh, in addition to what we just heard. As he mentioned, he's a coastal physical oceanographer and senior scientist at NOAA's National Ocean Service with his PhD from UNC Chapel Hill, uh, 2011. And he focused largely on understanding mecha mechanisms leading to rip currents and how to statistically predict them. His research has resulted in the development of a statistical rip current forecast model that was implemented into operations. He's also led a range of physical oceanographic projects at NOAA, one of which included the, the development of a high frequency radar surface current web product. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into all of that over the course of this discussion. But first of all, I think many Weather Geeks listeners are familiar with the National Weather Service, may not be familiar with the wet side counterpart, the National Ocean Service. So just give us a 101 on that. Sure. So, so the National Ocean Service is a, is a collection of offices, um, and we do a range of different things, really. So my office is the Tides and Currents office uh, in the Ocean Service. And so uh, we operate the tide gauges or the water level uh, gauges across the U.S., amongst a few other things. Um, and so, uh, you know, that takes up a lot of our time. So observing the coastal ocean is, is our primary focus. Um, but there are other offices, including uh, the National Centers for Coastal Ocean uh, Science, which focuses a lot on coastal research, uh, particularly with like ecological research. Um, we have a National Geodetic Survey, which you know uh, uses satellites to be able to to position you on the globe. Um, and we have the Office of Coast Survey, which you know provides charts. So if you you know if you go boating and you need to know how deep the water is, uh, they provide that information amongst a whole other thing. So, and then there's several other offices. So it really runs the gamut in terms of the services we provide, all folks and focused on different aspects of the coastal ocean. Yeah, and just prior to us taping this episode, uh, it, which will uh, obviously not necessarily air at the time of this happening, but we just had Cristobal, which is the third named storm of the 2020 season. And by the way, that was record breaking because we'd never seen in the records a storm named before June 5th, a third storm, the sea storm. Um, you all operate the network of tidal gauges for the NOAA tides and currents. Uh, how do these work and why are they important for things like hurricanes or landfalling tropical storms? Yeah, so we have over 300 uh, real-time water level sensors across the U.S. as well as you know, the coastal U.S. as well as the Great Lakes, um, the Pacific Islands, the Caribbean Islands, um, and and those stations provide water level observations every six minutes in real time, and and they've been operating for a long time. In some cases, some of our stations have been in operation for over a hundred years, um, and so so there's a ton of value with that data, ranging from you know on the marine navigation side of things to know how high the water is is really important when you're pulling a ship in. Um, to uh, uh, tracking sea level rise and high tide flooding because we have these long continuous data records of, of, of what the sea surface is doing. And then to your point, to also provide information on storm surge. So when there's a landfall, uh, landfalling hurricane or tropical storm, you know, our network is what provides you know, on the ground, real time observations of how high the water is, how bad storm surge is. And then it's used by the National Hurricane Center and others to be able to provide real-time guidance with how accurate the model, you know, their, their storm surge models are performing and then to validate those models and, and improve them uh, afterwards. And in, in the case of Cristobal, uh, it was interesting that, you know, we had several stations had really high water levels, um, including uh, Shell Beach in Louisiana was our was the highest, over six feet above mean high or high water. 
and that actually was, you know, that station hasn't been in that long. It was, I think 2008 was when it was installed, but this was the third highest water level on record since 2008. So, um, so pretty impressive considering, you know, it was a tropical storm. Um, but it, I think it's important, you know, it goes to show you that it's not just about the, the category of storm in terms of storm surge. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I, I preach in the, all of the time about focusing on impacts of storms and not getting too wrapped up on the category of these storms as they move inland. Even some of my own research over the years as a, as a scientist at NASA and now at University of Georgia has shown that it's little piddly, quote unquote, tropical storms like that that contribute the most to the rainfall budget in coastal regions more so than the, the big Cat 4, Cat 5 storms. So they have their own issues to Cat 4 or 5 storms, but definitely have to focus on impact. Let's talk rip currents because I know that's really one of the things that you're an expert in. So first of all, let's just establish a one-on-one on what rip currents are. Okay, so, so rips are relatively narrow shoreward directed jets of water that originate in the surf zone where the surf zone is basically where waves are breaking along the coastline. Um, rip currents in terms of, you know, kind of physical characteristics, they range in the, you know, 10 meters to maybe a hundred meters wide, um, extend offshore about a hundred meters or more. So length of a football field and, and they can reach speeds of two meters per second, which is about five miles per hour. And, you know, this audience might, might appreciate that speed, but I think when often when I'm talking to the public, you know, I think people think that sounds slow, five miles per hour. And I have to remind them, you know, Michael Phelps was a pretty good swimmer. When he set his world record in the hundred meter butterfly, he averaged five miles per hour. So, um, you know, unless you're an Olympic swimmer, these can definitely cause, uh, cause you problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've actually come to the Weather Channel and given seminars to on rip currents. Uh, people are starting to make their way back to beaches. And I'll admit, when I go to the beach, I'm not a very strong swimmer. I can swim and I have young kids. Well, not so young anymore. And I used to always be paranoid about rip currents. I was I would be very uh, limited in how far I would let them go out because I didn't, didn't know much about them and I knew they existed and I knew they were dangerous. Uh, even I think a colleague, we, Bill LaPenta, uh, uh, fellow colleague, I knew Bill for many years at NASA when we were both at NASA, and I think he was in a leadership position at NOAA. I think he was lost to a, perhaps a rip. I, I never heard if, if it was confirmed that it was a rip current, but that was certainly what some of the earlier media was saying. Uh, is that yeah, it was. It was suspected to be a rip, and that was that was a pretty dramatic uh, and just saddening uh, moment for a bunch of us at NOAA. And I didn't work closely with Bill, but I knew him. Um, and, you know, our group that works on RIPs, um, you know, it's a comb combination of both at the Ocean Service and Weather Service. And, you know, when that happened, it's kind of like a, you know, just a gut punch, you know, because you're like, this is something we're passionate about. We spent a lot of time about. And then it just I think it shows you that anyone can drown in a RIP and that, you know, don't don't think that just because you're a good swimmer that it can't happen to you. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm talking with Greg Dusick about rip currents and all kinds of interesting coastal water features and 
physical oceanographic features. And we're talking about rip currents. But one of the things I'd like for you to sort of dispel, because you often hear it, rip tide. There's no such thing, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I hear that a lot, rip tide. We've actually pushed uh, pretty hard to try to you know, make sure we're, we're encouraging people to use the right terminology because it's not a tide, it's a current. You know, I've, back when I was first doing research on rips, I can remember being on the beach and I, in the summertime doing, doing field work and people would come up to me, ask me what I'm doing. And they would be like, oh, when's the rip tide coming in? And people would conflate it with the tides as like, it's going to be this, this thing that just happens for, for like hours on end um, across the beach. And so, you know, I think it's important to call them what they are in terms of rip currents. Um, and in, you know, in terms of, of, of trying to provide guidance, you know, one of the, one of the, the reasons that we focus so much on them is that they're a huge public safety risk. I think a lot of people don't realize they're the number one uh, public safety risk at the beach and that we estimate there's up to maybe a hundred drownings per year in the U S due to rips. So um, that's why we're really focusing on them both on the science side and also communication. Now let's geek out a little bit on the science. What causes the rip current? So rips are, are caused by breaking waves. And so any water body where you have breaking waves, you can have rip currents. And, and really what's driving rips is variations in how waves are breaking along shore. And probably one of the, the textbook examples that I like to give is if you go to the beach, kind of an open sandy beach, and you have a sandbar near shore. And that sandbar isn't usually uniform. There might be breaks in the bar or channels in the bar where you have deeper water. And so you get these cases where you have shallower water over the bar, deeper water in the channel, shallower water over the bar, and waves break more over shallower water than deep water. And so in those areas where you have an increase in wave breaking, you get something called setup, which is uh, an, a, an average increase in water level caused by breaking waves. And that setup is directly related to the height of breaking waves. And so where you have more waves breaking, you have higher water levels, higher setup. In, and then where you don't have waves breaking, like in a channel, you have lower water level, lower setup, and water wants to flow downhill. And so it flows from those regions of high setup to low setup. And that really is what drives rip current circulation. Um, you don't need to have a sandbar. Other things can cause those variations. You know, Structures, groins, jetties, piers are notorious for being hazardous locations for rips. And then sometimes you can even just have, you know, because of the wave field, how waves are approaching the coastline, you can have variations with how they're breaking along shore and that can drive rips as well. So, so there are a number of different ways they can, they can be formed, but in all cases, it's really that, that breaking waves, the variability in breaking wave height, that's important. And some of your, your research or perhaps even your graduate work maybe devolved from that work is involved in predicting these. So uh, as a meteorologist and as a weather geeks listener base, we certainly know about weather prediction. Uh, we're basically solving these sort of very complex equations that describe fluid and how they change in time. What's involved in predicting rip currents? So rip currents turned out to be quite hard to predict, um, in, in part because of how the, the, the shape of the bottom changes. Um, it's hard to know what that looks like at any given time. Um, so the way that we've approached rip current prediction is, is using statistics. And so we use uh, numerical models to predict the, the, the waves and the water levels. So you know, important to rip current formation are how big are, you know, how high are the waves, how large are the waves, what direction they're coming from, and then what is your water 
level because if you're at high tide or low tide, it makes a difference. If you're at low tide, you have waves breaking over the bar, driving that circulation that I mentioned before. At high tide, you might have no waves breaking over the bar. They're breaking straight on shore and you can turn off rip circulation depending on how high the water is. And so we use computer models to, to predict those features and then correlate the output from those models to rip current observations to be able to say, hey, what conditions are leading most likely to drive hazardous rip currents at any given point in time? And, and I think one of the interesting ways that we've gone about this, and really out of necessity, is using lifeguards to provide us with observations because it's really hard, as you can probably imagine, really hard to, to observe rip currents in the surf zone with in situ instruments, right? You can put stuff in the surf zone, it's not gonna last that long. Um, and so, uh, the way we've overcome this up till now anyway is to have lifeguards help us with visual observations because they're probably the best people in the world to tell you if, if there are rip currents and how strong they are. And and we've relied heavily on their observations to to create our initial model and also now as we're validating it and calibrating it for for operations. Yeah, but how can like someone like me, <laughs> how do I identify a rip current? What, are the, what am I looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. That's that's a that can be a challenge, and it's something that we've stressed more of here at NOAA with some of our messaging because, um, you know, we've we've worked on what do you do if you get caught in a rip quite a bit, right? Our break the grip of the rip program, which was around since like two thousand four, has focused on that, and that messaging we've done some social science suggests that that messaging is working pretty well, uh, but we still have tons of drownings. So it's like okay, well, what we what we really need to focus on is not having people get in those hazardous situations in the first place. And part of doing that is helping people better identify if they see rips and what they look like. And so, you know, the, the best way to do that, I always tell people, you need to get away from the water's edge. You need to be up at a high location, ideally, like if you get up on a sand, you know, sand dune, the kind of the, the walk over the sand dune or up on a boardwalk or, or, or kind of just take your distance, much easier to identify. And what you want to look for first is, is changes in the way waves are breaking and really gaps in the lines of breaking waves. So, you know, that will indicate where you have deeper water usually, and that could be a rip. And then other features might be things like where you see foam being transported offshore or sediment or sand in the water or debris. You might notice that being kind of pulled away from shore. And, and those are kind of classical ways to potentially ID rip currents. And speaking of the uh, break the grip of the rip that you mentioned, let's say, and unfortunately this does happen, someone is caught in one, what, are, what do you recommend or teach in terms of breaking the grip? Well, the first thing we say is to stay calm. And, you know, because what happens, I think, in most cases is that people start to panic because it's a disconcerting thing, right? You're in, you're, you're feeling yourself pulled away from shore and you don't know what to do maybe, or even if you know what to do, we have lots of examples where people know what they're supposed to do and they still start panicking. And so the first thing we say is, you know, stay calm. And if there's someone on shore, you can wave, call for help um, and, and just float because rip currents won't pull you under the water. A lot of people, that's a misconception. People think I'm going to get sucked up underwater and really it's just going to pull you away from shore. So the first thing you want to do is stay calm and float. If you are a good swimmer, then we say swim parallel to the shore or swim, you know, along the beach until you're out of the rip current and then swim back to shore at an angle um, so that you're not going back into the current. Um, and 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 if if you if you can't do that, the best thing to do is just float. Um, in some cases, and this is some more recent scientific research shows that some amount of rips actually tend to recirculate. So 
there's a chance if you just float, it might bring you back to shore. Um, and so if you aren't a good swimmer, float, maybe you get back to shore that way, or if there's someone on the beach that gives them time to, to come rescue you or call 911 or, or, or something like that. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Greg Dusick from NOAA's National Ocean Service, and we're talking all about rip currents and other things that happen. I want to shift gears there and talk about tidal flooding and sea level rise. Um, Again, this is Weather Geek, so we like to do a little one-on-one from time to time. So talk about how the moon affects tides. I think people are aware of that, but let's kind of geek out on that for a second. Sure. So so the tide tides are primarily driven by the position of the sun and the moon relative to Earth, right? And 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 tides tend to be the highest when you have alignment between those three things. Um, so full and new moons, I think a lot of people might know that, that during full and new moons, you tend to have your highest tides, which we call spring tides. Um, and those happen about every couple of weeks. Uh, on top of that, the moon changes over the course of the month, the moon changes in its position relative to Earth. Uh, not a lot, but enough to make a difference on how strong its gravitational pull affects the tides. And when it's closest to Earth is called the perigee. And so you know, seven, eight times a year, you have <clears throat> times where the perigee and the full and new moon align. And so you get that alignment between the Earth-Sun-Moon system and the moon is closer to shore, I'm sorry, closer to Earth, and you really enhance your tides even further. We call them perigee and spring tides. And, and those times are the, the times where we're really concerned potentially about tidal flooding um, because you're getting up close to where, you know, even without weather contribution, waves, anything else, um, because of sea level rise, we're getting close to that point where you're going to start flooding uh, city streets and, and low-lying infrastructure. I want to ask you about the term nuisance flooding because I hear it a lot now and you just mentioned tidal flooding. But before I do that, I wanted to circle back to one question I wanted to ask you about rip currents. Uh, is increased development along the coast, does that affect the, the propensity for rip currents? Or This is a question that one of our producers wanted, wanted me to ask and I wanted to make sure I got it in there. So if in terms of structural rips, it can. So like a good example would be like along some of the New Jersey coastline, you have a lot of groins, uh, which were there to retain sand, right? To stop erosion. And, you know, you might have a groin every, you know, couple hundred meters or kilometers along, you know, kilometer or two along shore. And as those are built, certainly you would expect more rip currents in the vicinity of those structures. You know, we see a lot of there's a large portion of drownings that happen near structures. Um, and so as those increase, I would expect that there would be potentially more safety issues around those structures. Yeah, I, I wondered about that as well. But let's let's circle back to tidal flooding because there people often use the term nuisance flooding. You mentioned sea level rise. We know sea level is rising in, in part due to anthropogenic climate change, but also some other things happening with the natural source sinking and so forth. But certainly sea level and climate change are happening. Uh, is nuisance flooding the right term? Yeah, I don't like it. Um, we actually, at NOAA, we've stopped using it. Um, we've started using high tide flooding, 
um, because we think it's more descriptive of what's happening. Because typically the flooding is going to occur at high tide or near high tide uh, or be made worse by high tide. And it's really, you know, I think when you think about sea level rise, a lot of people think about, you know, the mean, the change in the mean, which isn't a ton, right? At least over the past 10, 20 years, you know, it's not a huge mean change. But what's really happening is how the tides are riding on top of that increase in mean sea level. And so the fact that we have tides is what's causing this rel you know, relatively large increase in the number of flooding days that we see every year. And I think, you know, nuisance, it's more than a nuisance, right? And it's going to, and, and I think we recognize that in the next several decades, it's going to become much more than a nuisance because when you start having flooding happening, you know, dozens of times a year or more, um, that's going to make a big impact to local communities. Yeah. And to keep in mind, when we talk about sea level rise, uh, which these tides are riding on top of, you're talking about you know, there's there's melting of some of the large ice sheets out there, Green, Greenland and West Antarctica. But you also, because of the warm ocean, you have water expansion. Is, is that correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah, those are your two primary contributions for sea level, for, for global sea level rise. But I think a lot of people also forget that, you know, when you're talking about what you experience at the coast, which is what's important to communities, you also have to consider local effects, which is in most cases going to be land subsidence. So, you know, land is sinking in many locations along the coastal U.S. And so that just compounds the impacts of global uh, mean sea level rise even even more so. And you mentioned sort of increases in these sort of high tide or, or tidal flooding days, so to speak. Do, do, do we have a number? I mean, has that been quantified? Yeah. So so we produce a report actually every year. Um, we've done this. is This is the sixth year. Actually, we've done this. We call it the high tide uh, flooding outlook. Um, and it, the next one's coming out in July, so in, in about a uh, you know pretty pretty short short order, and we track what's happened over the past years, and then what we project for the next year in terms of number of flooding days, and then also provide information you know looking up forward to to 2030 and 2050 um, in terms of longer term projections, and so across the, the U.S. as a whole, kind of the median day when we look at all of our ga tide gauges, we see about four flood days per year. Um, but there are several locations where, you know, those numbers regularly get into the teens. Um, and so, you know, one good example this year, one place that's having a record number of flood days is Charleston, which is, I think, known to have flood problems. Um, and, and for our, you know, for each of these stations, we set what we call a flood threshold, which is basically just the level at our tide gauge where we know that you start seeing flooding impacts, pretty substantial flooding impacts uh, in the communities in that surrounding area. And in Charleston, our gauge exceeded over the past year, the gauge exceeded that flood threshold 13 times, which happens to be a record for that for that gauge in any one year. Um, and to put that number in context, it might not sound uh, that dramatic, but you know we've had that gauge in Charleston since uh, 1921. So it's been there for almost a year. From 1921 to 1979, we recorded 13 floods. So it took 58 years to hit 13 floods, and now we hit 13 floods in one year. And that's such a key point that I want to emphasize here in this discussion and in discussions we've had in the past. 
because people always bring up natural variability and that these things happen naturally. But one of the things that we see in this era of sort of a, a, a changing climate is the rate of change of things. If you go back to high school math and calculus, the derivative that we learned about it, the rate of change of some of these things is so dramatic. The same changes that would take much longer are happening on much shorter time frames. Now, Delta T, if you want to get really geeky about it, the Delta T over that Delta T is very interesting. Now, you mentioned projection. What, how do you, what are you, what goes into projecting out these tidal floods or predicting? Yeah, so we, we rely on, yeah, we rely on the, the global mean sea level scenarios, which are then basically downscaled regionally. So, you know, a combination of the globe, you know, expected or potential, I guess, global mean sea level change. Um, coupled with regional impacts like coastal oceanographic effects and uh, land sub subsidence, like I mentioned before. And so we have those over a range of potential outcomes, um, low up to you know, extremely high. Um, and, and so when we look at our high tide flooding projections, we basically look at the distribution of how the tides change and move that along on those different scenarios. So we can see, you know, how many flood days are you likely to get if we shift that scenario upward along, say, the low, the low uh, scenario, which for global mean sea level rise is like, uh, I think, 0.3 meters at 2100, um, which is basically kind of where we've been on. Like, that's kind of the historic track of sea level um, up to, you know, one, one meter or more uh, by 2100, depending on the, the scenario. I think the interesting thing to your point that you mentioned before, Marshall, is that, and I don't think people really don't appreciate this, is that because it's the interaction between the mean and the tide, the tidal variability, even if you go on that low scenario, the lowest possible scenario, you're still going to get an acceleration in the number of flood days because more of your tide curve basically is getting up past that threshold that you, you need to reach to start seeing floods. And so, you know, we're in, we're in for, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, a much greater number of impacts, even if, you know, worst case scenarios in terms of sea level rise don't happen. And so important because we know that many of our naval installations around Norfolk and San, San Diego and Jacksonville are places that are experiencing these types of events down in Miami. And you've got some real issues with saltwater intrusion and all kinds of things that are the so what's that you might want to ask from a policy or a public standpoint with these events. The last thing I want to talk about is something that I actually came, became familiar with a couple of years ago. I, somewhere in, I think it was in Southwest Florida, I saw a occurrence of a meteor tsunami. And so I wrote something in Forbes about it. Now, as meteorologists, I get questions from the public about tsunamis all of the time. And I, I, I know what they are and I can actually answer the questions, but actual tsunamis aren't meteorological phenomena. They're more geological or oceanographic, and but meteorologists still get asked about them. But there is something called a meteor tsunami. What is that? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's it's what it sounds like, I guess, a meteorologically driven tsunami wave. And, and the, the big thing here is that the similarities are in, in the wave itself. So it's a long wave, meaning that the speed is dictated by the depth of the water. Um, and And so they have similar characteristics in terms of, of the periodicity. So a meteor tsunami isn't like the wave that you see at the beach, not like you know, a breaking wave that you might surf on. Um, it lasts anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours. And so it's, it's a relatively slow rise and fall of water 
compared to you know your classical ocean wind-driven wave. Um, and then they're meteorologically driven, and they're driven predominantly by uh, kind of pressure uh, changes in air pressure over you know moving like a like a derecho system where you might have a dramatic change in air pressure moving very quickly along the coast, and and that departs energy into the ocean. And if you have the right speeds, if your if your moving pressure system is at the speed that the wave wants to travel at because of the depth of the water, you have resonance. You just keep feeding energy into the water. And then once that it kind of releases, right, it can travel away from the initial disturbance. You can end up with a wave on the order of tens of centimeters. Um, but what ends up happening in terms of making them impactful potentially is when you start intersecting with the coastline. So, you know, you have potential amplification caused by harbors, estuaries, things like that, which kind of, you know, start forcing that wave uh, even larger. And in some cases on the U.S., you know, we've seen uh, media tsunamis over a meter high, uh, which is enough to start causing some impacts, some some damage maybe, and contribute to flooding. Are, are, they, are they more common in certain places in the U.S. than others? Yeah, so we, we focused, uh, we recently focused some of our research looking up and down the East Coast, um, because although there had been like these kind of, you know, a couple large events that were noticed, no one really knew how often they actually occurred. And so we looked at our, that another useful uh, case for our tide gauge network. We were able to look at all of our gauges over the past 20 years or so and see how frequently these events were, were occurring. And, and in terms of locations, what we found is like, in the mid, you know, up and down the East Coast, they happen, uh, but in the Carolinas, especially mid-Atlantic, um, and and they would occur, you know, on the neighborhood of about 25 each year, uh, which I think when we first saw that, we were like, wait, that can't be right. Um, but but when we dig into the numbers a little more, you find out, you know, the vast majority of those are very small, and so they don't necessarily have a huge impact. Um, you know, maybe one a year or so is at greater than two feet. Um, which is about where you might start seeing impacts. So like impactful meteor tsunamis on the East Coast are pretty rare. The other place in the U.S. where they're very common, even more so, is the Great Lakes um, because of just the way the pressure, uh, the way weather systems align with the lakes and the depth of the lakes tends to be very favorable for, for meteor tsunami occurrence. And, and I know there's been some historic cases on like Lake Michigan where there were numerous lives lost with really large waves um, and so, so it's something that NOAA, uh, again, with colleagues from Weather Service, from OAR, that we've been trying to get a better handle on to see if we can provide some guidance when, when especially hazardous events are going to occur. Yeah, and I know you, you did publish this work in 2019, uh, uh, probably one of the most comprehensive clim climatological studies of meteor tsunami. So definitely check that out if you want more information. Um, as we draw to our close here, any other sort of areas of research you're dabbling in or moving into that we have not talked about? I, yeah, I would just say, I guess, you know, at NOAA more broadly, and so something I've been and getting more and more involved in is is just applying AI and machine learning to different facets of, of, of oceanography. Um, and so that's something I've been working a lot on. And in related to RIPS in particular, some work we've been doing is, you know, I mentioned before about the lifeguards being our sole kind of data for when RIP currents are occurring. And what we're working on now is using cameras, so using webcams um, to identify rips. So basically, we can take video of the coastal ocean and train an AI model to tell you if it sees a rip current or not in that in that video. And so we have some work coming out that's hopefully published pretty soon um, that's that's validating that as an approach. And we're hoping to start being able to use that at NOAA to really complement and provide 
data in addition to what we're getting from lifeguards. And it's going to be a huge help with, especially locations where we don't have lifeguards, like the Great Lakes, because the Great Lakes doesn't do not have a lot of lifeguards, but they have rips. So, so uh, that's been super interesting to get into. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think AI and machine learning is going to be huge in, in everything we do, particularly on the, on the atmospheric side of the house, too, in terms of prediction and forecasting. Mark, where, where can people find you on social media or are things that you actually, uh, some of your programs, are there websites, social media you want to point us to? I sure, just called so. you Mark. Sorry, Greg. Mark, Mark's our geek of the week. Sure. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Dr. Greg Dusek. Um, and so, you know, follow me. I try to stay pretty active, especially during rip current season. Um, and then in terms of our data, any tech reports coming out of my office, you can go to our website, uh, tidesandcurrents.noaa.gov, um, which is a great resource, again, for any of your water level needs. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that. And now I can talk about Mark because it's the time in the podcast where we talk about our geek of the week, where we like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is meteorologist Mark Fox, who's the meteorologist in charge of the Amarillo, Texas National Weather Service. Mark's meteorological experience has spanned the public and private sectors as well as broadcast media. And with his love of thunderstorms, it's no surprise he found himself in Texas. Prior to his move to the Amarillo office, he served as the warning coordination meteorologist for the Dallas-Fort Worth office, where he covered multiple tornado events, including the December 26, 2015 tornado outbreak, which had 12 tornadoes in North Texas. Be sure to check out Mark on Twitter at FTWMET. Congrats, Mark. And if you think someone is deserving of our Geek of the Week, be sure to find out more at our social media sites. Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks, Marshall. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we will see you next time on Weather Geeks.